From Canada Land, this is Oppo. My name is Justin Lang, and normally I'd be opposed to Jen Gerson, but this week, Jen Gerson isn't here. On this week's show, we dive headlong into the murky waters of the upcoming Quebec election, and we're going to ignore the rash that comes from it. Then, later in the show, Jen reappears to antagonize everyone's favorite neocon, David Frum, the less famous brother of Senator Linda Frum. <laughs> it's going to be Frumtastic. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by FreshBooks. Check out the easy-to-use cloud accounting software that saves small business owners two days a month in paperwork and gets them paid up to five days faster. For a 30-day free trial, go to freshbooks.com oppo. This episode of Oppo is also brought to you by Sonos. Sonos is offering the listeners of Oppo 10% off of one order of $2,500 or less for any product at Sonos.com. The offer is available for a limited time only and cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. Use the promo code OPPO10, capital O-P-P-O-1-0, at Sonos.com to receive this offer. Because Jen can't be here with me right now, I've taken the opportunity to replace her with a Quebecer. Chantal Hebert is Quebec's best-known columnist and political voice, who is widely regarded as one of the most respected commentators in the province, but she wouldn't return my phone calls, so I got Patrick Lagasse. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick, how are you? Well, that's quite the introduction. <laughs> well, I mean, for those who, you know, might not read uh, your columns in La Presse, because, of course, not all of our listeners are bilingual as they should be, Patrick Lagasse is one of the most insightful and influential writers in Quebec, and he's personally one of my favorites. <laughs> he's apparently also a favorite of the Montreal police because they thought he was important enough to tap his phone a couple of years ago. What's more, he once convinced Justin Trudeau to throw himself down a flight of stairs, and if you haven't seen that video, you have to watch it. How did you get him to do that? I, I watched that clip like once a month, I swear to God. We had him on a show I used to co-host called Les Fratireurs, the, the sharpshooters. And uh, Justin Trudeau was then, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think he was leader. I, I No, I think he was a lowly MP. Yeah. He may have been... Or he may have been the critic for sport at that point. Or he may have, you know, if, if he was leader, it was just uh, recently. And then right. we, we dread that, you know, he's quite the athlete, Justin Trudeau. And uh, we dread that to make himself interesting in parties, he would throw himself downstairs, down the stairs, pretend that, you know, he was tumbling down the stairs. Uh, whereas it was a controlled fall, if you'd like, because he's done judo, I think. And uh, so we asked him, you know, and we were certain that he would not do it. Now that he's an MP, and we said, you know, would you like to do it? Uh, would you accept you fall in the stairs in our studio? And our studio was basically just an old apartment in, Ver in Verdun, in the southern part of Montreal. And the stairs was, you know, quite steep. And uh, it was it was basically concrete in the basement. And he said, sure, I'll do it. And he basically got up and we we barely had time to set up the shot. Our cameraman got downstairs and uh, Justin Trudeau just let himself uh, go down. So so. You know, it's fascinating because I've, I, on the same show, I had uh, Stéphane Dion. I think it was my second season, 2006. And Stéphane Dion, you know, he's this very stern guy, very serious guy. And uh, we asked him, you know, are, are you the life of the party sometimes? And, and, and uh, he, he told me, and he told me, yeah, I, to I tell jokes. And he told me a very, very lame joke. 
And okay, fast forward a couple of years, and um, there he is, Stéphane Dion and Justin Trudeau with, uh, I think it was Angela Merkel. And I, I thought, you know, here's the guy who told me a very lame joke, and here's the guy who told me, who, who fell down my stairs, and the Chancellor of Germany. <laughs> I choose to believe that Trudeau, when a certain meeting isn't going very well, will just throw himself down a flight of stairs. Like in the last round of NAFTA negotiations, uh, Trudeau's just going to get up and like launch himself down the, the White House steps. I'd really like to see a judo match between him and uh, Vladimir Putin. Oh, God, that would actually be fantastic. I brought you on the show not to discuss my favorite clip in Canadian media. I brought you on because while everyone in this country is fixated on the current train crash that is the Ontario election, mm -hmm. I can't help but feel like everybody's ignoring the other super important, interesting election that's happening in your province. Yeah, it's coming uh, next fall, uh, October 1st. And it could, you know, if the polls are potentially going to be correct actually signal the end of an almost uninterrupted 15 years of liberal rule in the province that, of course, little interruption being Pauline Marois for a year and a half yeah. a couple of years ago. So maybe all of our listeners are not super familiar with what's going on in Quebec. So let's break it down. How about you help me out? Let's walk through everyone's apparently odds on favorite to win, François Legault and the CAC. Yeah, the CAC. Who is this guy? CAC is uh, is a UFO in our uh, political uh, skies because uh, it's been founded a couple years back. And uh, François Legault is a former PQ minister, so a former sovereignist. And I say former because he's not a sovereignist anymore, and uh, which is a bit odd for someone who ran to be PQ leader. And, you know, his coalition uh, used to be laughed at, but it's really getting to be a coalition because you find people... Uh, you know, economically very, very far to the right, like uh, an economist named uh, Yuri Chassin, who thinks that there's no such thing as the public good, for instance. And on the other hand, he just recruited a former liberal cabinet minister, Marguerite Blais, who, who's very left of center. So uh, he's getting there in terms of a coalition. But, you know, here's my line for, for the political landscape. I used to say that, you know, in Quebec politics, just as this old uh, mantra that you have about this European soccer... Whereas, you know, in soccer, 22 men run around on a field for 90 minutes and in the end, the Germans win. You know, that's what they say. <laughs> and in Quebec politics, I, I, I used to say that, you know, for four or five years, you'll have political parties vying for uh, the favors of the population. And in the end, the liberals win. Uh, <laughs> but but now it's less certain that they're going to win. But, you know, the, the polls give François Legault and the CAC an advantage, but not a clear advantage. So here's my new line. The Quebec Liberals are very hard to beat. The PQ is very hard to kill. And the CAC of François Legault is very hard to define. We do not know yet what they stand for because they've never been in power. But it's going to be a very interesting summer. And it's already a very interesting uh, spring, Justin, because as you know, with this these fixed date election, you're basically in an electoral campaign for, for the 10 months before. And we're right into right. the, you know, the, the 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 start of this campaign. Oh yeah, I remember. I remember when Stephen Harper ruined my summer by deciding <laughs> to have a a fall election that lasted the entire the entire <laughs> summer. Um, so I think this is really interesting because Francois Legault sort of got back into politics on a promise of cleaning up the province and you know tackling the debt. Yeah. 
by a lot of accounts now, Quebec is probably, you know, to kind of weirdly crib note an old McLean's cover, the least corrupt province in the country because they've done such an aggressive job of rooting out any contractor, engineer, or politician who may have ever been a part of this, you know, former kickback scheme. Yeah. And the economy is doing really well. Philip Couillard is paying down the debt pretty, pretty quickly and in, in such a way that probably makes Doug Ford pretty envious. So it, it made a lot of sense for me for people to vote CAC last time around when, you know, both of those things were top of mind. What's the impetus now? I, I don't get it. You know, I'm, I'm reading, you know, news out of Quebec and I don't get what the impetus is for Francois Legault beyond just change and not wanting to vote for Jean-Francois Lisée. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know what? I'd say perception is everything. As you say, the uh, all of these corruption schemes have toned down. They've faded out of public view. Y you know, there are sometimes arrests that are made by the anti-corruption unit. There is a lot of... Uh, How would I put it? I don't think that the liberals did, in fact, clean the slate in terms of, uh, not of corruption, but um, a lot of the people who were there when these schemes were happening, a lot of the people who were there when the liberals of Jean Charest were not very keen mm -hmm. on calling a uh, public inquiry, <laughs> they, they stayed for very long with the liberals. And just now, recently, they've started uh, s signaling that they will be retiring. So mm -hmm. we call this, uh, what's the name in English? Usure. The liberals have been worn down by 15 years of power. So however you turn it, however, you, you know, you, you can quote statistics showing that the employment is going great. The debt is going great, too, in terms of being paid down. The economy is is really uh, not overheating, but uh, it, it's going good. There's this perception that, you know, they're worn out. So uh, this right. is, I think, what the, the, the other parties will be riding on. And of course, the other parties are always hinting at liberal corruption, which I find yeah. nowadays to be, you know, a bit uh, unfair. Well, I mean, nowadays, if, if you know, a, a lobbyist sneezes on you, you have to disclose it, and it will probably lead to some, you know, front page of the press story. I mean, the, the financial contribution limit is $100. Yeah. You can't get more than $100. That's crazy. That is by far the lowest in the country. There you go. And, and I think it's $200 now, now that we're in election yeah. year. So right, you right. cannot do what they used to do, which was moral corruption. It was, you know, they called it sectorial financing. So what they do, all political parties, but, you know, mostly the liberals because they've been in powers for so long, what they would do is they would call up a bunch of firms, like, for instance, in the sector of engineering and say, you know, we're having a cocktail and uh, the tickets are, uh, I don't know, $500. It'd be very good if you bought, you know, a bunch of tickets and you could meet the ministers. It was basically paid to play. Mm -hmm. And normally in Quebec, you know, when when everyone gets tired of uh, of a decade of the Liberal Party, they have a brief little fling with the PQ. And, and this time <laughs> around, it's not really what what's going on. I no. mean, you would think that in you know a normal campaign, the PQ would come out and and you know promise a new metro line from the Gaspé yeah. Sea to you know <laughs> <laughs> to the Ontario border, um, and would be promising all of these you know fantastical things. Yeah. And would would you know almost certainly unseat the liberals, but this time around everyone's turning towards an austerity right wing technocrat party. That's just so odd to me. I'm not sure that you know. Remember what I said about the CAC mm. is hard to define. It's I true, I, and I think that the CAC is a lot of things to a lot of people. You know, the CAC is riding on I think 42% approval within the French Quebecers electorate. Some people will like the fact that, you know, it will be, it promises to make the state a bit smaller. But, you know, everybody 
promises that. That's what that's what people tend to forget. Jean Charest in 2003 won, and he, he promised that he would re-engineer the state. He didn't do that. Also, there's the fact that they're not the CAC is not going to hold a referendum. The CAC is not a sovereignist party. And uh, the, the CAC is also a nationalist party. I know that nationalist nowadays in the Anglo-Saxon world is a dirty word, but it's not in Quebec politics. Mm. And um, the PQ is also standing for Quebec nationalism, of course, but the PQ will always be flirting with the idea of a referendum and a sovereign Quebec. And I think Quebecers don't want that. You know, 35% of Quebecers would like uh, to see uh, Quebec become a, an independent state. The enthusiasm for the idea of a country basically is at its lowest in, in my lifetime, I'd say. There's one party we haven't talked about, of course. It's the fourth place party, Quebec Solidaire. Yeah. And, you know, some polls earlier on this year had them, or maybe it was late last year, actually had them running pretty high. There was a moment we were seriously talking about QS and their weird, crazy, you know, left-wing, hard left-wing Quebec sovereignty platform overtaking the PQ. Yeah. That kind of fizzled out a little bit, but I mean, they're still running at about 8-10% in the polls, depending on which one you're looking at. Uh, and they have two pretty interesting and popular leaders. Gabriel Nadeau-Dubois, the former student protest leader, who we all kind of remember wearing a little red square in the uh -huh. streets, and Manon Massé, who is uh, one of the most interesting politicians in the country. Um, she's, you know, a longtime feminist activist, and by all accounts is super popular in the province. Yeah. Like, is there a chance they're going to play a, a bit of a spoiler role here? I think so, in terms of, you know, being a, a hurdle for the PQ. Just for instance, okay, former uh, La Presse columnist Vincent Marissal decided to uh, enter the political fray. And he's joined Québec solidaire in the writing of Jean-François Lisée. And this is going to be, the, in Rosemont, this is going to be a very competitive riding uh, next election. So, of course, the PQ was, I would say, pissed. I'm sorry to, <laughs> to use that word because... You can't fucking curse on this show, Patrick. Okay, I won't, I won't fucking will. <laughs> so the, the PQ was pissed because the PQ saw it as a symbol. Hardline PQ militants see Quebec Solidaire as a hindrance to sovereignty, even though they are sovereignist. Because what they do is that, uh, in their view, Quebec Solidaire eats the PQ's stake. You know, if you're leaning left and you're a sovereignist, uh, or even if you're leaning left and you're not a sovereignist, Quebec Solidaire is a very interesting protest vote. And they've managed to get three MLAs elected, and uh, they're, they're aiming for at least two more in the region of Quebec City. But I don't think that they can become a huge political force. Their aim seems to be to be the voice of the left. And they think that, you know, the PQ has been in bed with neoliberal forces for too long and they uh, they want to teach it the lesson. And, and Manon Massé, as you said, is a very interesting politician. She's not a career politician. She used to be a social worker, social activist. And, you know, you being on uh, social media, uh, just like I am, I've discovered the term in English, social justice warriors. Yeah. And, you know, I most of the time, these people, I will agree in general with what they stand for, but I find them uber annoying, you know. But Manon Massé <laughs> is a social justice warrior that is self-deprecating, that is uh, very interesting. I wouldn't say flexible, but she is, you know, you're not, if you're a left-wing party, this leader, just like other leaders and other uh, elected members of Quebec Solidaire, they're not going to scare away people, you know, like some of these mm. uh, social media social justice warriors. <laughs>
Uh, Quebec Solidarity and Amasse are kind of like if the NDP just gave up trying to win uh, yeah. and just <laughs> sort of <laughs> double down on, on the crazy socialism was founded yeah. under. There you go. Have you ever experienced that aha moment when you discover there's a much easier way to do something compared to how you've been doing it all along? Like when I learned to eat cereal with a spoon. If you're self-employed and managing your paperwork means wrestling with spreadsheet formulas and a shoebox full of crumpled receipts, then our friends at FreshBooks want to help. FreshBooks has become the go-to cloud accounting software for literally millions of small business owners who found a faster, more efficient, and much less stressful way to deal with their numbers. Here's three ways using FreshBooks might just inspire your very own aha moment. Preparing and sending a polished, branded invoice takes about 30 seconds. You can set yourself up to receive online payments for your clients in two clicks, which on average will end up getting you paid twice as fast. And their new proposals feature means you can include the project summary and a timeline as part of your estimate. Right now, FreshBooks is offering an unrestricted 30-day free trial for all of our listeners. To claim yours, go to freshbooks.com oppo and enter oppo, O-P-P-O, in the how did you hear about us section. Now it's time for the segment I like to call the Thunder Round, mostly because the phrase lightning round is still trademarked. It's a segment where we whip through as many topics as humanly possible so we can add a ton of keywords and beef up our search engine optimization. Patrick, <laughs> I want to start with Sundos Lamahari. She could be the first Quebec cop to wear a hijab, and I'm sure you can imagine it should surprise nobody. That didn't sit well with everyone, but at the same time... I don't know. It, it struck me that this debate has not gotten as loud as maybe some of the past debates around identity politics and religion in Quebec. And I guess I'm asking, is this debate finally sort of over? Are we cool no. with a woman wearing... No, no. <laughs> Damn it! No, Damn no, it, no, Patrick. no. We're, we're not cool about the issue. I don't think Quebecers are cool about the thought of having a, a woman police officer wearing a hijab or, or a male police officer wearing a turban. I think that part of the reason why this debate has not been as emotional as other identity debates or reasonable accommodation debates is the fact that it's still very hypothetical. You know, she's still a student, this young lady. Mm. But uh, it's not but, it's when. When we get to the point where a young man, young Quebecer will want to join the police force with a turban or a young lady with a hijab, uh, it's going to start all over again. And you have to understand, you know, these issues are not seen and debated through the same prism as you'll find in uh, English Canada. I see commentary coming from English Canada saying that we're all a bunch of weirdos and we're all a bunch of racists because we don't mm. accept easily, uh, we still have suspicion in front of these uh, religious signs. Sometimes there is racism, sometimes there's xenophobia, but sometimes there's just a, a different way of seeing the relationship between citizens and the states, like you'll find in France. You know, I don't mind having police officers wearing religious signs. Um, I think that they're professional. I think that judges who wear kippahs or whatever, uh, I don't think that they're interpreting the law through uh, what they wear in their, uh, on their head and mm -hmm. who, which, which deity they pray to. But a lot of people will be taken aback by this. Some of them are racist, some of them are not. And, you know, it's just a different province. Remember one thing. Before 1960, religion used to run a lot of things in this, uh, in this province, unlike what you'd find in other provinces. And a lot of people do remember our religion, the Catholic religion, uh, used to uh, guide people's life, it used to have a huge influence in civic life and political life as well. And they do not want to see this era coming back through other religions. 
So, Patrick, I want to move on because I know you want to talk a little bit about all of the fun party switching that's going on in Quebec right <laughs> yes. now. It, it kind of it feels like everyone has completely lost their morals <laughs> and is, is is signing up for kind of whatever party they feel like. It's all topsy turvy. The former head of the Bloc Quebecois announced this in the last couple of days. He's going to be running for the Conservatives. Yep. We've got oh no 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 some. He, he's going to campaign for the Conservatives. He's not running for the Conservatives. Oh okay, fair enough. Well, not I mean not yet. No, but still uh, still there's a symbol there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know we we have people kind of picking and choosing between the center-right liberal party and the far-left Quebec Solidaire. What's going on? Has everyone lost their minds? Well, okay, l- l- let's recap. <laughs> Michel Gauthier used to be... Michel Gauthier was in the first you know, batch of uh, Bloc uh, members, and uh, mm-hmm. he's been leader for a very short while, but he was... Uh, you would see him because he was the leader in the House of Commons for, for the party, so... You'd see him being volcanically pissed off all the time. And now he's come out after 11 years of not saying anything publicly or almost. And he says, you know what? I'm going to campaign to get uh, conservative uh, uh, MPs elected next election. So that that was a symbol. Michel Gauthier and Andrew Scheer are a very weird buddy duo. Like I, I, wasn't, uh, I didn't <laughs> yeah. see that coming. Yeah, but, but at the same time, you know, it's very in, in sync with a lot of people in the electorate where people will, you know, uh, shop their political affiliation. They'll they'll vote for one party in one election. They'll vote for another one in another election. And th- what we're seeing now, you know, in, in Quebec politics is a lot of people changing allegiance. Like Marguerite Blair, she was, for a number of years, she was an uh, MLA for the Liberals. She was also a minister. And uh, she's decided to go for the CAC. And Alexandre Taillefer, Alexandre Taillefer became very well known. He's a businessman. And he was on the Quebec version of uh, Dragon's Den. And um, is that it, Dragon's Den? Shark Tank? Wait, 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 wait. Does, does yours also have Kevin O'Leary on it? or No, <laughs> no, a... because Kevin O'Leary doesn't <laughs> speak French. So so there you go. And, and Taillefer was became very well known. Everybody knew that at one point he would probably you know, go into politics. He announced he was going into politics for the liberals. But what came out was that he gave money in the past, in the recent past, to the CAC, gave money to the PQ. And he also had a membership card from, uh, from the Parti Québécois also. But a lot of people will shop around like that. So, you know, they, they do just what regular folks do. That is not being affiliated forever, like uh, if you're in a, in a marriage with one political party or the other. I want to talk about another weird party switching going on, which is the Bloc Quebecois, which is miraculously, I mean, almost amazingly imploded. Uh, <laughs> we now have Bloc Quebecois classic and then like Bloc Quebecois new. It's like new Pepsi. Uh, and I'm, I'm kind of I'm fascinated by it. Debut Quebec, I think is the name. They've, yeah. Uh, this new independent gaggle of former Blocists has started, all thanks to uh, the current leader for the moment, Martine Ouellette, basically running afoul of all her, almost her entire caucus. Yeah. And now there's still a challenge against her leadership from the remaining tiny block block. So uh, what's going on? <laughs> Look, it's very hard to follow what's going on, but let's sum it up like this. Martine Ouellette is a Quebec MLA. She has a seat in the Quebec National Assembly. She was elected block leader. Well, elected. Nobody else uh, ran. So she, <laughs> But it. she's not elected as an MP. And Madame Ouellette for a number of years, has been seen as, is it true or not, but that's a perception, Justin, hard to work with. She doesn't do compromises, they say. And now, 
That's what uh, the seven MPs from the from the former bloc are saying. We don't want to work with her because she's uh, she doesn't do compromises. It's my way or the highway. And you know, put yourself in, in their shoes. They won their seats. You might not agree with their idea of separating Quebec from Canada, but they won their seat. And here is this unelected leader that tries to tell them, you know, here's how we're going to do things from now on. And uh, that didn't sit well with them. And they broke away. And now there's all kinds of internal politics. But you know what? In the end, what's going down at the block is just a symbol of how disorganized and dispirited the uh, sovereignist movement is at the moment. I don't think that the, the voice of Quebec within the government, within the liberal federal party, is that strong. It's been in the past much, much stronger. I miss the days of the bloc actually being an effective opposition. So get your shit together, bloc. <laughs> There you go. Sonos' new speaker has Amazon Alexa built right in, so you can start and control music with your voice, which is pretty cool. You can play songs, check news and traffic, manage smart devices, and enjoy all the other helpful Amazon Alexa skills using a single Sonos speaker. With multi-room listening, you can fill separate rooms with different music or have the whole house playing that one Tom Jones song you really like. Sonos One is backed by a pair of Class D amplifiers and custom-built drivers to annoy your neighbors, and the sound is face-melting and pure. Since Sonos is continually updated with new features, services, and skills, your music and voice options will keep getting better over time until it finally becomes sentient. Turn on lights, adjust the temperature, and more. With Sonos One, you can control your smart home devices with your voice. Sonos is offering the listeners of Oppo 10% off of one order of $2,500 or less for any product at Sonos.com. This offer is available for a limited time only and cannot be combined with other offers, discounts, or promotions, so don't even try. Use the promo code OPPO10, capital O-P-P-O-1-0, at Sonos.com to receive this offer. Jen couldn't be with us this week, but we did dispatch her to go and check out one of the most unlikely foot soldiers of the hashtag resistance. Here I am, Jen Gerson for Oppo, and joining me today is guest David Frum. Mr. Frum, thank you so much for joining me, although I have to apologize in advance because obviously things are going pretty badly for you in your life if you've actually consented to come on this podcast. This is a recurring problem for me with Canadian radio interviews. I, I spoke a little while ago to Michael Enright, and who opened um, with this very dramatic description of how once at the heart of the Republican establishment, David Frum, and I had to stop and say, you make it sound like I'm sleeping on a sewer grate. So <laughs> I'm happy to join you um, and to, uh, I mean, there, there are things that people need to hear. Um, if people are listening to those things via you, I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Wonderful. Um, So most people who have been following your political journey away from establishment Republican politics and into what I would call the dark heart of political centrism would, I think, note that conversion you've been going through predated Trump and has long predated Trump. But what has Trump highlighted for you about some of the problems with the Republican Party and with conservative politics in the U.S.? For me, the central political change event of my recent career was the um, recession, depression, of 2008-2009. And to put that in some perspective, in the quarter century from the time I graduated from college until 2009, there was a severe recession in Canada in the early 1990s, that's true. But in the United States, at the center of the global capitalist world, those were 25 years in which there was not much inflation and mild recessions. And it looked like the problem of how do you deliver steady growth with only occasional bumps had been solved. And the kinds of things that people worried about in the 1930s, those problems were out of date. Mm. Suddenly, there appears a 
recession that but for the most heroic activities at a very difficult moment in that Bush-Obama transition, that handover, um, could have careened into a true global depression. Hmm. I mean, 25% unemployment was not, was not unthinkable. Um, and even, even though they managed to prevent things from tumbling down the mountain as deep as they could have, even it, with all the heroic activity to, to stop the collapse that happened in 2008 and to end the further deterioration by the summer of 2009, for the next year and a half, you had millions and millions of people in the United States out of work for years. Mm-hmm. And so what do we do? What do we do? And in, in the American context, if you're an able-bodied person without children, when your unemployment insurance is gone, you get basically nothing. And someone as old as me had never seen anything like this in a lifetime. It was something from a storybook. And you had to really think about it. So it, um, those events jogged me to rethink. You know, I think that the conservatism that I grew up in had some very important and correct answers to the problems of the 1970s and the 1980s. But one of the things that is true of politics is it is an exam in which the questions keep being changed. And it does no good to offer answers to other problems, however apt those answers are, if you're given new ones. So that, that's where I was in 2010. That's, um, that got me into some trouble at that time. But I was saying all this, I need to stress, within the context of being basically remaining a, a quite conservative person with you know, a lot of affinity, especially with the conservative parties of the world outside the United States. So you see that the Republican Party is becoming noticeably more radical around 2008, 2009, thereabouts. That's when you think that, there, that this shift happened. 2009, 2010. 2009, 2010. Yeah, uh, they're, they're becoming much more radical. What then happened, and this is what made Trump possible, the Republican Party, meaning the party in Congress, the donors, the intellectuals, they became radical in an economically individualistic way. Hmm. Their radicalism took the form of, you know, more Ayn Rand, more Barry Goldwater. Mm-hmm. But the Republican rank and file were becoming radical in quite a different way. And this was very poorly understood by the leaders themselves. Um, if you actually went to a Tea Party rally in 2009, 2010, and I went to a few, more than a few, look, they didn't, these were not people who are used to demonstrations. They are not people used to politics. But they, so their language, they had trouble saying what they had in mind. But if you really listen to them, what they were telling you was they, they were 62. Uh, they could see retirement looming up before them. Their house was worth a lot less than they thought it would be. Maybe they are, their house was in trouble. They'd taken their savings because of the dot-com bust in 2000, and now it happened in 2008. Those were worth a lot less. They were frightened of the future, and they needed their Medicare. That's what they were there to protect. And President Obama's health care plan was, and they were right about this, going to cut into the future growth of Medicare to finance a whole new social program for people who were different from them. They were right about that. That was not crazy. That was not paranoid. Maybe you don't approve of their reaction, but they were seeing something that was true. So my joke was that what was happening is at the elite level, the party was saying, right, we need less Medicare, more immigration, and one more Bush. And the people at the bottom were saying, no, no, we, we need less immigration, more Medicare, and no more Bushes. Mm-hmm. And that was the gap that Donald Trump exploited. A lot of people will point out this idea that Trump is some kind of aberration to the, the U.S. political system, that he's a bug, not a feature. But I mean, I think a lot of progressives would reject that position in that point of view. They would say that 
you know, Donald Trump is just the terminus of a long trend of Republican Party politics going back not just to 2009, but, you know, going back to Reagan or to going back to Bush that, you know, he was just willing to say outright and articulate outright the grievance, the white grievance in particular, that a lot of um, Republican Party presidents and nom presidential nominees uh, would hint at, but with a wink and a nudge. And I guess I kind of want to go back to you because, of course, you, you know, you were a pretty formative intellectual figure, you know, in the Republican Party during some of those those years. Do you think that that is an accurate or a fair way to describe the Trump phenomenon as, as it exists today? Look, I wouldn't want to say it's completely wrong, but I would say it's mostly polemical rather than analytic. Obviously, there, there are things in Donald Trump that are continuous with things in the American past. That's always true about any new event. I am more impressed by the way that Donald Trump is similar, not to things that happened in America in the past, but things that are happening around the other democracies of the world right now. Hmm. Um, so I, I see him as having way more in common with the National Front in France, the alternative for um, Germany, um, Jeremy Corbyn uh, in Britain, the five-star move, sometimes on the left, sometimes on the right, for these new populist anti-democratic movements that reject... NATO, that reject free trade, that reject the European Union. So yes, you can trace the ways in which he's like George Wallace, for sure. But that means that means cutting yourself off from being aware of the ways that the politics of other democratic countries are producing Trump-like figures, including sometimes, as I said, sometimes on the left. Jeremy Corbyn has a lot more in common with Donald Trump than he does with uh, people in the U.S. Democratic Party. Trump, uh, he is now in a struggle with law enforcement, where um, he, although right now it looks like he's losing the battle in the courts, he's winning the battle for public opinion. If you poll Republican attitudes to the FBI, Trump has succeeded in persuading his party, the party in power, that um, the FBI is acting politically. I'm going to dispute you on one point. I think you and I would probably share a couple of core values issue, issues, probably more than we would disagree on some of these issues. And I would agree with you that undermining some of the core systematic processes that underlie the accountability structure of the United States. That's all bad. We're all, we're all in agreement that that's bad. But how is firing the director of the FBI more corrosive than starting a war based on false pretenses in Iraq? I mean, to me, the, the, the corruption and the rot that you're talking about, Trump maybe has taken it to the next level, but this has been happening for the last several decades in the U.S. He's the culmination of a long process of, of a sort of democratic weakening. I would say there you're, you're overstating this. Let sure. me separate the question about foreign policy from the one about law enforcement. My one-leg history of the United States would be that from about the 1910s to the 1990s, law enforcement became more independent, more honest, less corrupt, with the biggest spasm of improvement coming in the 1970s. But from the 1910s to the 1990s, we're generally on an upward trend with a sharp upward improvement in the 1970s in the integrity of law enforcement. So Trump on that really is pushing the country down, down a hill that it had been climbing up till then. Now you say, well, is that worse than starting a war? Is it worse than plunging the economy into a depression? Those are categories, I just think they're different categories of things. But what I would urge you to understand is we are heading toward a series of horrifying foreign policy crises. Just, this happened two days before you and I spoke. One of the things that characterizes the Trump White House is an incredible slovenliness. A lot of typos, people's names are misspelled. They call people prime ministers who are presidents and the other way around. You know, that's no big deal. So two days ago, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, makes has a big presentation presenting a lot of new information 
um, secret information about the Iranian nuclear program of the late 90s and early 2000s. And it gives it shows that the Iranians had lied about their nuclear program when they did the Iran deal, but it also confirms that the Iran's nuclear program, really weapons program, really did come to peter out after 2003. Mm -hmm. The White House issued a statement in which it said, the Prime Minister Netanyahu's press conference confirmed that Iran has an active clandestine nuclear program. So everybody's heart goes in their mouth. Because if that's true, we're on our way to war. Half an hour passes. They, oh, sorry, typo, typo. We didn't say has. We said had. Oh. Well, that's a little different from saying Louise when you meant Louis or Prime Minister when you meant President. But the people who say Louise when they meant Louis and Prime Minister when they meant President are also capable of saying has a nuclear weapon program when they meant had one. I'm kind of wondering what, what happens after Trump. I mean, sooner, what are, one way or the other, unless Trump does manage to finagle a third term or something like that, you know, Trump is going to end. And where do people who align themselves with liberal values and align themselves with the Republican Party or with conservatism generally go when it's shown that the party that they hold to or the party that they have connected with is morally disingenuous and doesn't align with any of the values that it traditionally used to and has demonstrated that by electing Trump. Where does this go? Where does politics go after Trump? When I get asked this question, I feel like, you remember those old Western movies in which they have the collapsing chairs, they hit over each other's heads, and the fake bottles, and so there you are. So I, we're in a, the political bar fight of our lives, and the chairs are being thrown, and the bottles are being thrown, and um, you know the six guns are going off, and somebody says, uh, by the way, how are you getting home after this? I don't know if I'm getting out of this bar alive. I don't know. How, when the fight is over and if I'm alive and if, God help me, if the good guys have prevailed, I'll worry then about how I'm getting home. I have no idea. And in, in, in a way, I, I refuse to engage with the question because it asks me to observe the situation like a spectator rather than like a participant. The, the very shape of the struggle that is going on now is going to determine what the possibilities are afterwards. That, that there are going to be a lot of things that, you know, I might wish to happen that are just going to be foreclosed. Let me give you a very concrete example. The most necessary thing to happen to restrain Donald Trump right now is for the Democrats to do well in the November elections, something I normally would not favor. But now, if they do well, I will wake up the next morning like Winston Churchill after Pearl Harbor, you know, sleeping the sleep of the thankful and the saved. They may win very big, bring a lot of left-wing people in with them. Suddenly, politics is going to, we're going to be talking about different things. A lot of things that I don't like. But that, it, you know, one of the things that I have to accept as a political answer, that a lot of things may happen in politics that I don't like, that as part of the price of preventing Trump from consolidating the power, his power in the way that he would like. What, how do we deal with that? I'm going to have to worry about that later. Because one of the things that happens in political action is you deal with, you have to deal with today's problems. You don't have control over the outcomes. And the and outcomes often deposit you in places where you had, you had would never have started voluntarily if you'd had any choice about it. You may not believe it from this actual interview, but I am a big fan of your work, David Frum, and I really do appreciate it. It's really really wonderful, and it it, uh, it is really great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for the time. Thank you again. Bye bye.
That was Oppo. And Patrick, I actually learned something for once. So this was a, it was great to have you filling in as a guest host. Thank you. <laughs> we want to know what you think. Email us at oppo at canadalandshow.com. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at oppocast. I didn't even know we had a Facebook, so that's great. <laughs> the next episode of Oppo will be out in two weeks. Canada Land's original deep dive politics show Commons will be out next week. This episode was produced by David Crosby for Canada Land Media. Editorial assistance by Olamide Olanian. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. And music by Nathan Burley. Patrick, you have the last word. What is it? Look, uh, Quebec is a very interesting place. And, and the mistake one can make looking from the outside is concentrating on all the noise, on all the uh, blustering from our political class, from our uh, certain media commentators and stuff like that. On the ground, sur le plancher des vaches, as we say, I mean, it's, it's a great place to live. And Montreal is, I think, still the greatest city in this uh, country. I've been to Saskatoon. Saskatoon is pretty angry at you right now. I've been to Regina. <laughs> Toronto Toronto is I great, haven't. but there's not it's missing this little je ne sais quoi that we have. La vie est trop, trop importante pour prendre au sérieux. On a un escalier, on, on peut avoir une démonstration. Aucun problème. Non. Oui. 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 Donc, le, le truc, c'est vrai, normalement, tomber dans les escaliers. Comment ça là? fonctionne? Normalement, je te mettrais genre ici, là, puis okay. je passerais, puis je dis, hey, comment, comment ça, ça va? va? Okay. Oui, okay. c'est vraiment le fun, là, puis là, tu vois, t'étais réellement inquiet, là. Il était réellement pas trop sûr si je l'avais bien fait ou non. Puis ah, tu pas fait mal. Euh, je pense que je me suis graffiné un petit peu là, mais pas. Non, c'est pas. OK. C'est mon, mon beau rouleau, là. Ah, puis le micro est resté en plus. L'homme sait comment faire une sortie. <rire>